the most quotable statement that Jesus made in his entire, entire ministry. If you look through the years, you have you know, famous sports people and all kinds of famous people that have used this statement over and over and over again. It's easy to quote a statement like this without knowing like who is saying it, who is receiving it, when it happened, where it happened, those types of things. And it's important to understand that because you're going to begin to understand the dynamics of it a bit more. And so this, this verse is incredibly profound. Um, but part of why it's profound is where it's finding itself within the text that we're going to be in this morning. We are in the Gospel of John, and we're walking through a teaching series in the Gospel of John together. And this first sub-series we're in is called Come and See, where Jesus encounters specific people and reveals himself to them. And this morning, we're going to spend the bulk of our time uh, meeting a guy named Nicodemus in a late-night conversation that Nicodemus has with Jesus. And so we've just come out of a time where we saw a feast and we saw Jesus turn water into wine and revealed his first sign to us. We went on and saw a cleansing of the temple take place. And now we're going to meet uh, Nicodemus. But before we do, I want to finish up John chapter 2. And it's going to be short and sweet. And the first point I have for you as we dive into this um, is this. Don't get caught up in the flattery of people. Don't get caught up in the flattery of people. John 2, starting in verse 23, it says this. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So we begin here, again, don't get caught up in the flattery of people, and Jesus would be one we want to look to with this. We have these people, this group of people that we see in this text briefly that, that had seen signs of Jesus, saw these kind of significant moments of Jesus, and they wanted to believe because the signs that were there. However, Jesus knew all people, and he did not entrust himself to the people that he knew so well. Jesus knew their faith was based on what they saw, an event that they saw, and they did not trust in him and who he was, but what he was doing. And he wasn't duped by flattery. We can very easily, I can very easily be duped by flattery. We can easily be duped by this, by flattery. And his, his grounding, Jesus' grounding in his identity and knowing who he was, was so significant. It was significantly greater than the inconsistencies of human flattery. Appreciation and honor is a good thing for sure. To extend that is great, but we must not be careful to yearn for this type of honor and appreciation. We can feel this very urge. We can yearn for inconsistencies of people's flattery. And as followers of Jesus, we can sure feel that as well. Where our work is done to get something from someone. We can find ourselves putting in more effort when we know someone's looking. And yet when someone's not looking, we don't. We can very easily kind of base our effort and energy on who's looking and who's not looking. And we can lean in more when a presentation's coming and we can lean back when there's no one to be looking. And if I'm honest, I, I've felt this 
recently. I've been wearing a couple of different hats, more hats than normal. Like I mentioned about Sam, uh, I've been lead pastor by day and student pastor by night. It's kind of been this interesting dynamic that I've been living in pretty full season, but we all have those at times. And in this season, I, I've found that if I'm honest with you, and I'm not looking for you to now give me something, this is not the point. I even questioned if I should even share this, but I want to be honest with you. I've, I've found myself wanting this type of flattery. You know, when you put like more in than normal, and you kind of put all in plus some, you can begin if you're aware of yourself and if you're honest that motives can be, I, I want to kind of return on my investment in some way. Investment could be, a return could be uh, spaces like what Jesus is talking about here. And I've been reminded of this verse in Colossians 3, 23 through 25. It's just been super challenging for me. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for who? For the Lord. As for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This, this statement in Colossians 3 is pointing us to this moment that Jesus has in John 3. He's not caught up, or the end of John 2, he's not caught up in the, in the flattery of people. What he's doing is he's being faithful and obedient to his Father, regardless of what people are saying. So Jesus was grounded, and his soul was fed on the reward of his Father, so friends, I just remind you as we pass through these few verses that we could very easily overlook to, don't, to not get caught up in the approval and yearn for the approval of people. The same people who approve you one day will potentially hurt you the next. Instead, friends, anchor yourself in the one who gives all of himself to those who trust him. It's a challenge for all of us to consider what is my motivation and what I do in my life and my work and I would encourage us to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, to recognize that like Jesus understood the heart of man for us, to find our trust and our hope in Jesus. Don't get caught up in the flattery of people. Then we move on to, Gen uh, to John chapter 3, and in John 3, 4, 5, three chapters over the next three weeks where we're going to meet three people. Today we're going to meet Nicodemus. Next week we're going to meet a woman at the well, and the following week we're going to meet a man who was healed. And so in John 3, we meet Nicodemus, and the first few verses set the stage for us. We'll read. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This, this man came to Jesus by night. And he's about to say something, but we'll pause there. So we meet this man, Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's a religious leader. He's well-versed in the understanding of the Torah, the law, the religious law of that day. He knew it front and back. He was super aware of those details. And he was a ruler. He was a leader of the Jews with regards to how to interact with God. So we meet this guy, Nicodemus. Big, important, powerful dude. In, in the religious sector. And then we meet the place that he approaches Jesus. It says, at night, he comes to Jesus. It would have been unwise for this type of religious individual, with the tension that everyone felt around Jesus in this time, to approach Jesus by day and ask him the kind of questions he's going to ask him because of his stature, because of who he was, his prominence in that day. And so he chose to come at night. In the middle of the night, we don't know if it was 10 p.m. or 2 a.m., if he bangs on Jesus' door in the middle of the night and wakes Jesus up, or he catches Jesus before he brushes his teeth. We don't know when at night, but we know it's at night that he comes to Jesus. Where the crowds were not there, he did not want to expose himself to the public with regards to him approaching Jesus. But he comes to Jesus, and he has this dilemma in his soul. 
So I want us to kind of feel the moment that's happening here. He comes searching, looking for some answers from Jesus, beginning to believe that Jesus might be the very one he thinks he might be. So we have this physical night, but D.A. Carson in his commentary in the Gospel of John says that he reflects on Nicodemus experiencing a darker spiritual night than the actual night that was existing. So there's a, a spiritual confusion he's trying to get clarity on, and there's an actual night that's taking place as well. So we have this stage set, leader of the Jews, coming at night to Jesus, searching for some answers. And we pick up in the second half of verse 2. It says, he said to him, Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, Truly, we're going to hear that phrase a few times. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The second point I have for us this morning is new birth is necessary for life in Jesus' kingdom. New birth is necessary for life in Jesus' kingdom. So we read and we see Nicodemus' posture. Again, he's searching and his approach uh, to Jesus by night. He knew who the promised one was. He was well-versed in the promises of the one who would be to come, who would fulfill the promises of God. And he wondered, could Jesus be the fulfillment of those promises. As a Pharisee, he was well-educated and well-trained to understand the fulfillment of God's plans, the promises of the Messiah and the Anointed One, the reality that the coming kingdom would be through the line of David. And so he's searching and his mind is spinning. This is decades of his life that he's put his heart and his soul into what seems to be this coming moment Is Jesus the one I've been studying for all along? Is he the fulfillment to everything I've memorized and everything I've put my effort and energy towards? He's shocked by Jesus and wonders if Jesus could be the coming promised one. John colors this in. You fast forward a few chapters later, we we hear two more times in the Gospel of John about Nicodemus in John 7 and in John 19. In the passage in John 7, we read this, that the officer's answered about Jesus, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, remember him, John 3, we're talking about him right now, who had gone to him before and who was one of them said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So we see in this moment that 
the, the wheels in Nicodemus' mind are turning and he's, he's just so confused and yet he's so relieved and he's so hopeful and yet he's so terrified. Like all of these emotions happening at one time as he sees the fulfillment of all of these promises potentially coming to a head in the person of Jesus. And so he starts this conversation under the dark sky with a cool breeze blowing and a private candlelit conversation between him and Jesus. And he says, Rabbi, no one can do what you're doing without coming from God. It's like that. He's convinced that no one can do the things that you're doing, Jesus, without you coming from God. And Jesus responds and he says, you must be born again to experience the kingdom of God. It's funny to me. I think uh, the way that Jesus responds sometimes is just like, wait, you're not really answering the question. You know, like you're just, you're just totally sidestepped. And as the most brilliant man to ever live, and the one we follow is the most brilliant man to ever live. As a, as a sidebar, Jesus never called you to lead. He called you to follow. And we're called to follow the most brilliant man to ever live. And he shares in this moment this intentional response. And he gives these two statements. He says, you must be born from above or born again. I'll get into that more in a minute. To see the kingdom of God. The word see means to see or view or perceive. There's something that we're invited into that we only can see if we are born anew. See, to experience the life of God's domain, you must be born again. See, of the flesh, born of the flesh, we are naturally governors of our own kingdom, our puny pseudo-kingdom. And being born again is submitting to the reign and rule of Jesus' kingdom, this place where the Lord reigns, this place where the Lord is king, the place where is, this kingdom is everlasting, and the prerequisite to this kingdom is you must be born anew. This kingdom that is at hand in the coming of Jesus and the kingdom that will come again, this place where we talked about last week with the feast, where this domain will have a feast, where death will be no more, where sin and sorrow will be wiped away, where the dragon will be slain, where everything sad will come in true. This is the kingdom Jesus is referencing. And Nicodemus is just so confused. You can imagine. Like, put yourself in his shoes. We see hindsight. But again, this dude who just is so brilliant. He's a doctor of, has a doctorate in religion, and he's so well-versed in the Torah and he hears Jesus say, you must be born again. And again, we get it, in part, kind of get it now. But he's like, I'm like in my 60s. My mom's maybe dead. And you want me to be born again. I'm a grown man, Jesus. How on earth can this be? He's befuddled. We would be befuddled if we were in the shoes of Nicodemus. Jesus says, truly, truly. Again, he doesn't want Nicodemus to miss the moment at hand. So I'm not talking about flesh. We see this again in John 4, when Jesus talks about living water. We're going to see this next week. Jesus talks about living water, and the Samaritan woman thinks that he's only talking about the water from the well. There's some confusion on, on literal versus spiritual in the same way here. He's not talking about flesh, human nature. See, human birth produces people who grow up in earthly families, but not, they're not. Just because you're born does not mean you're a part of the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean you're a child of God. You must be born again to be a child of God, born into 
born anew into his kingdom. What he's talking about is this renewal of the spirit. We all have this spirit. I'm not going to act like I have uh, all wisdom on the details of what this fully means. But what I do know is that the spirit gives birth to spiritual people. The heart of flesh is tied to our first parent, Adam. And that first parent, Adam, he rebelled and rioted against God. And because of that, the world has fractured ever since because we've rebelled against God as our king. And so we're born with these hearts that are broken. And Jesus invites us to be born anew. For by the Spirit, our hearts come alive. Where we no longer are submitting to the domain of our own kingdom. But in being born again, our hearts turn to submit to Jesus and his kingdom. He mentions water and spirit. And there's all kinds of studies on what this could mean and what it might not mean. And I'll keep it simple for us. Water references John the baptizer. We talked about John the baptizer again. He's not the one who wrote the gospel of John, different John. John the baptizer was one who went before Jesus. And in him going before, he would baptize and he would, which was a sign of repentance. So that water is pointing to repentance. Repentance can be a junctural word for a lot of us, but it's very simple. Repentance is simply you're walking this way, you're walking towards living under the domain of yourself. And you turn and you say, I want to walk and submit to the ways of King Jesus. That's simple repentance. Turning from your own ways, turning from your own uh, vision of life and turning and submitting to Jesus. And that's not a one and done thing. That's a daily, can I be honest, hourly thing. Well, we turn our hearts consistently towards the kingdom of Jesus and away from the kingdom that we want to live for. So that water is referencing repentance and that spirit is referencing new birth where our hearts become anew as we turn our hearts towards God. And I can imagine, because Jesus just does this enough, where I just, I'm reading into the text a little bit here, but I wonder if the wind begins to blow as Jesus sits in the middle of the night with Nicodemus. Candle lit, the candle begins to kind of flicker a little bit. It's pitch black, maybe the moon's, we don't know what the moon's doing, who knows. But we do know that he talks about the spirit being like the wind. And I can just imagine, because Jesus just does this all the time, where he takes a natural moment and he ties it into what he's talking about. And I can imagine the wind blowing and him saying, you know, Nicodemus, just like this wind blowing right now, you can't control it. You can't tell it where to go. It does what it wants to do. And in the same way, the Spirit is the one who breathes life upon our hearts and causes us to be born from above, causes us to be born anew. It's not something that you can checklist your way into, but it's by faith and trusting that God can do this good work. D.R. Carson goes on to say, he says, for a man like Nicodemus entering the kingdom of God did not have to do with the transformation of an individual's character, but with participation in the resurrection life of the new order God would powerfully bring about at the end of, of history. So there's this reference of, of cleansing and renewal. It's a referencing of, of having our own hearts being renewed as a depiction of what is to come when God will make all things new. See, the domain of his kingdom is what has been promised and is being realized through the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, a whole new world. Jesus' kingdom is about a whole new world. 
that is now opened up, the kingdom of God. It's not about waiting till we die to experience it, but it's about experiencing it by faith here and now. See, a new age, that day again, that early morning when Jesus rose again, it was a dawn of a new day. It was a dawn of a new era. It was a dawn of a new age where the arrival of this promised one has come and he's at work and he's removing the curse and he will bring all things new. Being born again is a part of that journey. As the earth will be regenerated or made new, so us were invited to be a part of that. We must be born again, submitting to the domain of Jesus. So to participate in this kingdom of God, we must first be made new. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into, to turn from our ways to repent with water through that picture of what John once said and to see our hearts made new. It doesn't mean that we become perfect in that moment. We never do. But it, it deposits the seed where we begin to grow it over time. We begin to see God's work in our lives and we more quickly repent. We more quickly turn our hearts towards the domain of Jesus. It's not one of those things that it's now done and we're no longer going to experience the sorrow of life. We will, but it is, a, it is a seed that God puts in our heart and changes us and we begin to see things differently than maybe we once did. See, new birth is necessary for life in Jesus' kingdom. The text continues in verse 9. It says this, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I believe? How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And he gives this example to try to connect the dots for Nicodemus. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses, this is a very familiar story that Nicodemus would know. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, Nicodemus is thinking, how, how on earth can this be? This is not about fulfilling the law, Jesus. This is about renewing our hearts. I thought this was about uh, dotting all of our I's and crossing all of our T's and living a moral, straightforward life. And you're saying this is not about that? And it's about your heart being made new first? He's so, he's, his, again, his mind is just moving. He was thinking it was about the oppression, removing the oppression from Rome. And he's like, this is about internal transformation. This is not about removing a governmental structure. And Jesus responds, he says, man, you're like the lead dog here and you are so clueless about this stuff. Like how can you be like the leader of the Jews and be so aloof to what I'm trying to communicate to you? And then he gives this familiar story in Numbers chapter 21. It's the story of the Israelites. They had been rebelling against God in the wilderness, one of the many times they did. And in so doing, God sends these serpents. The text actually says fiery serpents. And these fiery serpents come and they bite the Israelites. And a lot, of, a lot of Israelites die in this moment. And they begin to cry out to God. They begin to turn their hearts to God. And in that moment, they, um, God speaks to Moses and says, create a staff, and on the end of the staff, put a bronze snake on it. And lift it up, and anytime somebody is bit, you can look to that staff as God's provision and be healed. 
And so what is, what is Jesus saying to Nicodemus in this moment? That, that it was by God's provision, not by your effort, not by your work, not by dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's, by faith and trust in God's provision as that serpent, bronze serpent, was lifted up and you trusted and found healing in that, so must be the Son of Man lifted up, that whoever believes in him, trust in God's provision, has life and life, resurrection, eternal life. See, Nicodemus, he's saying, as the ancient Israelites were commanded to turn to the bronze snake for life, so you must turn to Jesus, the one who will be lifted up on the cross and then lifted up again when he's glorified, and trust in him and find life. So Jesus seamlessly continues this conversation into the one, one of the most famous quotes that Jesus ever gives. We read this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he would, sorry, that Condemn the world, but in order that the world would, might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that, this, that his works have been carried out in God. So in the dark night, Jesus gave to us the hope of the world. It is not by us figuring out our life. It is not by us finding the right candidate. It is not by us voting our way into something, though we should vote. It is not, that is not the hope of the world. He helps us make sense of pain and sorrow here. He helps us make sense of how God is going to fix everything that God loved and God gave is the answer to the world. See, his one and only, this is a stress on the greatness of the gift that the Father gave his best, his one, his only, his prized sacred son. He gave his son to redeem the world. See, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people. It's not um, why his love should be admired. His love should be admired because the world is so broken and sad and undeserving. That God so loved the world, though the world did not deserve any of it. He, by grace, giving us what we didn't deserve, gave his son so the world is dark, and even John in 1 John, a future letter that he writes, tells us to not love the world or the things within it. That's confusing. So you love the world that you gave your son, but you tell us not to love the world or the things within it. And so what he's doing here is he's prohibiting us from loving the things within the world that are broken and marred. And yet, for him, he so deeply loved the world that he wanted to restore the world that he gave his son. And by candlelight, Jesus gives the heart of God for why he came into the world, to this searching religious leader named Nicodemus. God so loved the world that he gave 
his son. His intent wasn't to destroy the world. I don't know what you think about the future day of God's return, but it's not to destroy the world. It's to redeem and heal and renew the world. His intent was to keep the world from perishing. His hope and heart is to keep the world from perishing. And this is the story of God that we read it in John 1, that he uh, chose to create and speak, and the world came into existence. The word, uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And you fast forward in John 1, and we see that the, the world did not recognize him, the world did not care about him, the world rebelled against him, and then it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, the story of God is about him rescuing, his, him renewing, him restoring, him healing all things. I met a friend recently who works with a nationally known prison ministry. And uh, there's about 2.3 million people in America that are incarcerated. Um, and they go into jails and prisons and they share the love of Jesus to people that might be spending the rest of their lives behind, behind bars. And most of us won't spend time behind bars or haven't spent time behind bars, but we all are behind spiritual and emotional bars, enslaved because of sin. And he didn't come to give us bars. What we read is that we put on the cuffs ourselves, and we put ourselves in that cell ourselves, and we close that door ourselves. It wasn't Jesus who did that. The world was already condemned. We already chose to riot and rebel against God and wanting to submit to our own design and our own preference and not his. See, sin leads to death. Sin destroys us and keeps us from God. It keeps us from health. It keeps us from hope. But whoever believes isn't condemned, it says. Whoever doesn't believe is already condemned, already has the cuffs on. We all have the cuffs on. We're all human. We all have cuffs on. We're all behind bars. And the difference is that some will trust in the rescuer that can free us from the cuffs and the bars. See, Chesterton supports this claim when he says, what is wrong with the world? It's me. I am. I am the problem. I am the one who is condemned. See, we prefer to reject God and his design and letting, wanting him to let us live our life free from his wisdom and design. And friends, we need the Son of God to be lifted up. We need him to have the power to rescue us. And we have the good gift that he has done that and he has offered us new life to be freed from our cuffs, to be freed from the bars that we have. See, condemnation and judgment is not something that Jesus shies away from. He makes it very clear to Nicodemus that we are all condemned. We are all ones who are condemned. There's a popular progressive book written around sexuality, about how Jesus is loving and gracious, but never mentions him being holy. And it's interesting because I think that there is a truth to be said that he is incredibly gracious and he's incredibly loving. But in him being holy means that he is gracious different than we want him to be gracious. And he's loving different than we want him to be loving. When we don't see Jesus as holy, and the way that he is, we will miss that he came to save us from us. He came to rescue us from our intent and our motivation and to set us free. He is kind, yes. He is merciful, yes. But he's kind and merciful enough to not leave us where we are. So he sits with Nicodemus and he tells him, I've come to set you free from your bars. I've come to set you free from your handcuffs. 
I've come to deliver you from your sin, just as that snake was lifted up, so I will be. And if you trust on me, you will find healing and hope and life and restoration and reconciliation with God. See, he came into our prison and he pulled us out. And this is what it means to be born anew. That whoever believes, remember that word that's going to be used throughout the Gospel of John, whoever believes for others to believe again finds this provision in God. So friends, we are invited to experientially know this kingdom. And the only way we can know this kingdom is through our hearts being born again. It's not through getting our life right. It's by turning from the domain of darkness, turning from our motive of allowing ourselves to be king and trusting and the God who cares for you more than you can imagine. We're invited to be set free, but our, set, uh, our freedom is not found by our own merit, but it's found through trusting in the provision of God. And Jesus offers us life, and life eternal. And it's not just one day where we're sitting on clouds. Like we're invited into a new life here and now where you can experience peace amidst chaos. You can experience hope and care and self-control and kindness and goodness here and now through submitting to the kingdom of Jesus and trusting in him. And so, man, for some of you, as we close in this time, we're, some of you, I invite you to believe again, to put your hope again on Jesus to remember that there is a king and there is a kingdom and maybe in your own cynicism and maybe in your own pain of life and seeing the hurt and sorrow that people have experienced and you've grown maybe a bit dull in your believing. And through this text, we're invited in this moment to believe again, to put our hope upon Jesus again and to find life in his name. Friends, this is the gift that we are given The kingdom of Jesus is at hand. We're invited to be born again. We're invited to trust in his provision. We're invited to be set free from our chains. That gift is offered to you and me this morning. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that in some ways we're so comfortable with these cuffs on our wrists. For others of us, we're so comfortable with taking one off and leaving the other on. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to to see the gift of freedom that you invite us into, that you've invited us into a posture where we no longer have to experience condemnation. We can be free and know that you have forgiven and you are renewing and you are writing a story and you are king. Lord, help us to trust you. As we go through life and we experience confusion and we don't have answers and the things that we thought would happen don't and the things we thought wouldn't happen do and we can be so confused in this life, God, help us to trust you. Your work. You are on the move. And you are king. Lord, give us the gift of faith that only you can. Renew our hearts afresh. In Jesus' name. Amen.